The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. We begin. I'm just, all of you should have a handout, I hope. If you don't, you can raise your hands and maybe the people at the door can help you. We're going to look at some texts that have been informing, informing to me as a dad regarding my role and shape some principles, give a number of examples of what it looks like for me. All of my notes, and I have quite a few of them, will be sent to you via email. I've been told that that's possible. Everyone who's been signed up for the seminar, I'll just send you a PDF, uh, hopefully in the next week or so, that can include all of my notes. So if there's too much that you can write down, Lord willing, you'll get that. Plus, all of this will be online. We begin in Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very familiar passage. It is the text that Jesus said contains the most important commandment. And therefore, we know that this isn't just old covenant, bears old covenant significance. It still is significant for Jesus' followers, all of us in this room. The text says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words, Moses says, that I command you today shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. They shall be as, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of, uh, and on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So we begin. Principle one. Making disciples of our children is about helping them treasure Yahweh's supremacy over all things in all their lives. Notice verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. What's the them? Well, that's verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. At the very least, these words includes the great commandment that Moses just laid out. Hear, O Israel, there is one God over all, the only causer of all. When you think of the pantheon of heaven, don't put anyone else there except Yahweh, supreme, the only judge, the only ruler, the only uncaused one. And in light of that, love Him with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Love Him with everything internal. Love Him with your entire being. Indeed, love Him with your whole substance. This is a radical God-centeredness. Some have called it the all-commandment. All your heart, all your soul, all your might. If you love God that way, there will be no closet of your life that will be left closed. He will intrude into everything. And I as a dad have a responsibility to help my children who were born with an innate sense that they're at the center of the universe. I need to get them out of that place by the grace of God that God might be that hovering, blazing center. And I get that right there from that text. To love Him with all. That's an affection word that overflows in a type of loyalty. 
Making disciples of our kids is about helping them treasure Yahweh's supremacy over all things. Notice the spheres that this kind of radical God-centeredness, radical love impacts. We see it first in verse 6. It's about personal appropriation. These words that I'm commanding you, get them in your own heart, mom. Get them in your own heart, dad. Now, the old covenant could only go that far. It could command them to do something. Get it on your heart. That's why we needed the new covenant, where God actually does it for us. He writes it on the soul. And so I, as a dad, am am pleading with my God that he might overcome the resistance of my children's hearts. They can resist the Spirit until the point when the Spirit says, enough. And then he overcomes that resistance and gives them new desires, gives them new life. Personal appropriation is essential. And then you move from personal appropriation to personal application. Notice how it's given to us here in the text. Application first in our parenting. Teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It moves beyond parenting, though, into public witness. Bind them as a sign on your hand that everything you do, everything you touch, declares there is only one God and I love Him with all. That everything you see, may they be as frontlets between your eyes, so that it becomes the lens through which you're reading reality. All the good, all the bad. There is only one God, the ultimate uncaused one, everything else coming from Him. And giving my kids a lens for understanding this kind of big God theology that we cherish at Bethlehem College and Seminary. I want my my kids to capture that kind of living, that kind of thinking. But not only that, it's to be, it says, written on the doorposts of our house. That everything that goes into the home, everything that comes out of the home is declaring there's only one God here. That means that this kind of living is going to influence my wardrobe. It's going to influence the movies I have, the music I listen to, the games we play, the TV shows we watch. Write it on the doorposts of your house. There is only one God, and I love Him with all. And it influences the public square. The ESV says, write write these words on your gates, but... The Hebrew text actually changes the preposition. It's in your gates. We're not talking a picket fence here. We're talking about a city gate where the husband sits among the elders of the land. The city gate where where Boaz was able to declare, Ruth is my bride. The city gate where all commerce and public activity and authority and judgeship happened. This is about what's happening daily in the public sphere and wherever you are declaring in his life, in this dad's life, there is only one God and your kids see it, they hear it, they know it. This text has had a radical influence on me and, and Jesus says it's supposed to. Principle two, parental instruction should be both formal and informal. Notice the two verbs in verse 7. The ESV translates it, teach them diligently. 
That's one verb. Teach diligently. It's related to this word of repetition. In contrast to talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. There's the everyday unplanned events that are supposed to be declaring God is everything to us. This is who we want to be surrendered to. But then there's the repetitive, planned, formal contexts where instruction is to be happening. I think Moses saw both as essential. Certainly we would see formal things like Sunday school, youth group fitting this bill. But the leaders in the church overseeing our kids are merely, we would consider them surrogate parents in that moment that are simply supposed to be reinforcing what mom and dad are already doing at home. The principal call for discipling children from the, throughout the Scriptures is the context of the human household, not the broader community of faith. It's me as dad and my wife Teresa as mom that are bearing the responsibility, primary responsibility of shepherding our kids. And it happens in both formal and informal settings. The NIV's language of the first verb is impress. Impress it upon our kids. As I already said, it's the language of repeat, repeat to our kids. Psalm 78, 5 through 8 says, The Lord established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. Fathers teaching children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children. So that they would set their hope in God. That's what I want. I want my kids to have this radical sense that everything is coming from God. Everything is pointed to God. And my very tomorrow, my breath, my battling sin, my saying no to impurity is fully dependent on God. I want my kids to hope in God. And what that necessitates is being a man of the Word who's teaching my kids the ways of God, teaching my kids the works of God, so that they're constantly reminded they are not Him and they need Him. The fear of God would be, would be formed and shaped and fashioned into their souls because only when we fear God will we follow God. I have come that I might test you, said the Lord, through Moses in Exodus 20, I've come that I might test you that you might fear me so that you will not sin. But Israel didn't fear God. They took their eyes off God and they sinned a lot. But Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will never turn from me. That's perseverance of the saints. That's what I go to bed trusting in for me and for my children who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. That it, God will put the fear of Him in, his, in, in their hearts, but it doesn't happen without instruction. They need that intentional clarifying from a dad, from a mom, giving these kids a big vision because believe me, we're always teaching them. And when we don't give them boundaries, we're teaching them that they are free in this world to live their way for their glory rather than for our God's.
So let me give some examples in my own family of how we're, we're trying to do the repetitive, um, the, the, the repetitive, intentional, planned, formal structure. Daily, we just have it built into our family schedule that everybody's doing personal devotion time. The kids wake up, that's the first thing they do. From the littlest kids up to the biggest. The littlest kids are listening to the NIV Bible experience. They hear the Bible going. And then we have this 30-day calendar where we've got missionaries, family members, close friends, daddy's co-workers, the senior leaders in our church, 30 days with different people all listed. Today we pray for Bethlehem College and Seminary's leadership and a dear pastor friend who is a national Ethiopian serving in Ethiopia. That's what happens on January 30th. And so that's just part of our home. The littlest kids up to the biggest kids, they wake up, they spend time in the Word, and they pray. There's bedtime routine. Daddy goes into the littlest kid's room. This is just part of our planned, structural, purposeful, daily routine. Daddy goes into the rooms, and from the littlest kids, from the time they were the smallest, Daddy and Mommy have tucked them in, and, and it's often a time where my kids just start talking. And I don't want to miss that opportunity. And sometimes I have. Sometimes I've been more concerned about my agenda than about pausing to um, listen. But when I've listened, it's been, there's been beautiful opportunities to shepherd the hearts of my kids. And then I pray for them. With my older kids, they're no longer in that crew. They're staying out often as late or later than mommy and daddy. And they still come to me. And I treasure the opportunity to pray for them specifically. We hop into the car. If you're part of our family and you hop in the car with us, whether we're going to the church, going to grocery store, or going to grandma and grandpa's in Michigan, we pray. Every time we get into the car, it's just one of the things we do. We're going to Home Depot. We're praying for, for safety. We're praying for that, that the Lord would uh, let us find what we need. Sometimes we pray for divine appointments. But all we're trying to do is just shape within our kids a mentality that, that God, we, we need God for everything. We don't want to take God for granted in the least of things. When an ambulance goes by, it's just built into our home We've got six different individuals, all three of the kids, if mommy and daddy forget, who's going to pray? We might be the only person on the planet who's actually praying for that situation. So it's just built in. That's daily stuff. That's just purposeful every time it happens, weekly. Now, I as a dad, years and years ago, really struggled with how do I how do I have family devotions? What is that supposed to look like? And how do I fit it into my very full life? How many have been there before? Yeah. And so it was 12, 
13 years ago when my wife and I finally said, I mean, I just, I feel like I've, in my 18 years of being a dad, I've failed so much, struggled so much, and God has met us with so much grace. But I just said, what can we do? And the, we just said, well, let's start small. Let's just start small. Let's pick one day a week. And this is what I encourage you brothers to do. If, you, if you're, start, start small. Don't, don't put something, um, a commitment higher than you can keep. Start small, and we said one day a week, let's have a structured family worship time. And what that meant was Daddy was going to teach for 30 minutes. It started with Daddy getting up on the couch, reading his Bible, and my two littlest kids at five and three, my two oldest kids at that time, five and three, now my oldest is 18, five and three, uh, sitting next to me with a paper and a crayon, and Daddy would walk through the stories of the Old Testament, telling them of the works and the words of God, and they would draw pictures. And then I'd ask them questions. What it turned into was a formal, structured time. We call it 3D, Doroshis, Devotions, and Delicacies. It's had that name for at least a decade. And that means that Daddy's going to teach, he's going to teach the Doroshis, and Mommy's going to make yummy food. And so, right now, it's Friday mornings. Last semester, it was Tuesday mornings. And we gather at 8 o'clock, and Daddy teaches. And we've covered the gamut in 13 years, all kinds of things. And I've gotten lots of help. Just on last, two, last Friday, we had our 31st week, hear that, 31st week walking through this little book understanding world religions in 15 minutes a day. This daddy may be an Old Testament and biblical theology professor, but I didn't know a lot about world religions. But I found someone who does. Gary Morgan is a former professor of intercultural studies at a Christian college in the area. He was a member at Bethlehem for years and years. He's on the board of Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he was a missionary in Kenya for 20 years. And in three-page chapters, he walks through all the major religions of the world and explains them. Well, I take 30 minutes, 7.30 to 8 o'clock, I turn away from whatever I was doing, and this is just on one day a week, and I read through this three-page chapter, I take notes and create a handout. The handout includes things like history, practices, beliefs, Christian response, and everything I'm drawing just from this little book. It's written in such simple way. Any of you could do this, and then I go back and I teach my kids for another 30 minutes on that chapter. Mormonism, neo-paganism, Jehovah's Witnesses, animism, Taoism, Jainism. And, and I've just walked through it. 31st week, we've got two more weeks to go and we're done with the book. I want to teach my kids basic Bible doctrine. Well, I could recreate Wayne Grudem on the fly and package it for five-year-olds, or I could go and pick up Bruce Ware's Big Truths for Young Hearts. I don't go and read this book to them. I sit down and I try to, I walk through it, and it's going to be a little bit easier for me because I'm, than for, for some in this room, because I'm usually teaching this kind of stuff. But 
still what I do, I don't just reproduce where, I evaluate where, I critique where. And, but you don't have to do that. Here's a faithful dad who taught his girls theology, and this book walked through in a structured way how he did it when his girls were growing up. And it walked through, I mean, it, the, category, the chapters are very much like you'd find in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, but it's packaged for moms and dads. And so I read three to four pages, and I try to package it then for my kids, and I think about what could they draw. I mean, I've got little seven-year-old, seven-year-olds, twin seven-year-olds, and eight-year-old, and they do good with pictures. What could they do? That's weekly. In the last, uh, in the last several months, we've added another thing. I don't know that it'll last. This 3D always happens. Nothing breaks it. This other thing, Saturday mornings, Dad's been meeting at the fireplace with the boys, and we went through First Peter, just a paragraph at a time, walked through. I'm just trying to teach them what kinds of questions should they be asking when they're reading the Bibles. And then we got down to First Peter, and I said, where do you want to go next? Guess where they wanted to go next? Revelation, yeah. Oh, great, okay. So into Revelation we've gone, and um, it's been good. It's been really good, and I've gotten some help from some places. And, um, but just try and recognizing, I think the Bible calls for formal, structured, planned, repetitive instruction, but that's not it. And most of the rest of my time is going to be spent focusing on informal instruction, teaching them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. I'll add one more thing. Annually, for more than a decade, we've celebrated Advent as a family. We've taken the month before Christmas and we try three times a week for all four weeks leading up to Christmas to to do something to prepare the kids. We've used John Piper's Christmas poems and we've just walked through them and let that guide our time. We've, we've looked at Old Testament texts that anticipate the Messiah. This last year, we did something we'd never done before. I took a definition of the gospel. Here's my definition. The reigning God, reigning God, saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That was my definition of the gospel. The reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We took four weeks. First week, we looked at the reigning God. What does it mean that He's king through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? What does it mean that God reigns? And I looked at a number of texts on three different days, and what the kids did, we took for the whole week, every time we met, Daddy would teach for 15 minutes, and then they would draw a picture, and all of us would draw a picture. We spent a whole week on one picture that tried to capture some of the truths that we had gained from the biblical texts we look at that focused on the kingship of God over all things. And it was beautiful to see the creativity come out of the kids, all of them, from the 7-year-olds up to the 18-year-old, and then to get to see my wife's drawings. It was a joy. The reigning God saves We spent a week on God saves through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God satisfies. 
week three, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And who does he save? Believing sinners. That was our fourth week, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Just trying to help our kids. This is the gospel. This is what we celebrate. This is what Paul said was of first importance. Not of only importance. There's many things that are important, but the gospel is of highest level. So we took Christmas this year to focus on that. Formal, intentional, repetitive training. I think that's what Moses was pointing to there. But that's not it. We also have these unplanned, informal times. We just want to help our kids learn that life is about Jesus. All of life is about Jesus. Whether we eat, whether we drink, we do it for the glory of God. I've told my kids, if we can't pick someone up and slam their head into the ground, we shouldn't delight in Sunday afternoon football if we can't do it for the glory of God. Everything, I want my kids to be thinking, yes, this right here, whatever it may be, daddy's teaching, certainly. Daddy's reading the kids. What are we reading right now? Isaac, what are we reading right now? Swiss Family Robinson. My son's, one of, one of my boys is right up here. Reading Swiss Family Robinson. How do we do that in a way that honors the Lord? Even in doing that, just engaging as a dad in reading, the kid, reading kids' stories, I'm modeling something about our father. He loves spending time with his kids. It's a joy in our God's heart to delight in his kids. Often there's words, but often kids will learn more about God from our reactions than our actions. What's inside the soul comes out when we get shaken. So there's verbal statements, but there's also the delighting in our kids over a board game. It's listening carefully to our kids when they ask questions just in order to display the care of God that He has for us, the way that He helps us in our weakness. Mundane moments fill our everyday lives, and yet they're supposed to be for the glory of God. They're supposed to be done in a context of dependence. So I want my kids to hear about and see God on display. I want them to encounter Him in youth group and at home, in driver's training, when we're reading books, when we're eating at the table, when we're having family movie nights, when I'm tucking them into bed. I, I mentioned this, that I was giving this last night, and my 15-year-old daughter, Ruthie, said, Daddy, I would love to make you a list. And I was just honored by that. So she made me a list last night. Here it is. I woke up early this morning. It was sitting on my desk. I didn't know that she had gotten to it. And I read through her list and I thought, okay, where could I put some of these into what I had planned? So here's something, my daughter's, my daughter's reflections on daddy's informal, unplanned discipling. Here's three of her points. Showing intention, this is her words, showing intentionality to get to know us and our inward thoughts and feelings, like on birthday dates and random talks. Taking time to invest in us and our interests. By doing this, you're setting for us a small display of the big amount of care and love that God has for his children. Both you and mommy make sure to nurture our abilities at different skills, building, cooking, gardening, so that someday we'll be able to serve others and God by our ability to work. 
so much of my life is given to ministry of the Word, and it hit me, it was several years ago now, we got a missionary letter in the mail from one of my former students. She was a girl that I had taught in my early years of college teaching, I had taught her biblical Hebrew. And we got her missionary letter. She serves with Wycliffe, S-I-L, in Papua New Guinea. Her missionary letter comes in, and it's just filled with testimony of her opportunity to share Jesus with these natives who had never heard. And I said, kids, do you understand something? Hear this. Do you understand, kids, that you had a part in making this girl's ministry possible? If our kids are crazy, dishonoring, a dad's life is going to be crazy and it's going to struggle. But because my kids honor their mommy and daddy, there's a context of peace in our home. It empowers this daddy to go and minister to others, to train people in biblical Hebrew. I can't do that. I'm disqualified from that kind of ministry if my home is a wreck. But because my kids are listening and honoring, they're not perfect, believe me, but they're empowering this daddy to be involved in things that matter. What they're doing matters for the greater expanse of the kingdom. And right now, they're involved in ministry in Papua New Guinea because they let this daddy be able to teach Hebrew. You want our kids, we want our kids to, to feel like what mommy and daddy are doing is vital, and I'm involved in it, even in the way that they honor mom and dad, listen to mom and dad, the way that they act in public. Our discipling of our kids matters, not simply for their lives, for our own ministries. We need to account for that. When we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise, that doesn't include only the good times. I, as a dad, have a responsibility to help my kids say there is only one God and I will love Him with all. When grandma gets in a car accident, when grandpa loses his job, one of the great gifts of God to my family in my last decade of life, hear this, was going through the process of losing a child that we loved dearly. We were in the midst of an adoption, our very first adoption. We were matched with a little boy whom we still love, whom we pray for weekly, if not daily. His name is Chernet. This was seven years ago. He was scheduled to come home. He was going to become a Doroshi in one week. And Isaac, my son right here, and I were, sit, were out in our garage building bunk beds for him and his new brother. And I got the phone call that said, Charinette is not adoptable and he can't come home. I, I can't, I have trouble um, explaining to those who haven't been part of adoption, but it's a weird thing in the same way that when that child comes out of the womb and, and you're able to say, this child is mine, and, and God just all of a sudden expands your heart's capacity to love it, the same thing happens with adoption. This child was our child. And all of a sudden, he was ripped out of my being able to father him closely. 
all of a sudden he was ripped away from being our children's brother. And it was so heartbreaking. I mean, it was deep-seated, core-wrenching suffering of loss. And we wept together as a family. And I had a responsibility in that moment to try to disciple my children through deep loss in a way that would say there is only one God and I love Him with all. He's in charge of this. He's not being caught off guard. He was in charge when we were matched and He's in charge now when the doors close. And we will treasure Him. God, help us. Prove your worth to us, God. Hold our hearts. Help us love you as you want us to love you through this pain. And being able to do that with little kids, six, eight, nine, being able to help them walk through deep-seated loss with big God, and I will love him with all, was such an honor and such a gift to our home. And every one of our kids who've now... um, Every one of the older three who's now accepted Christ and gone through the process of baptism, all of them in their testimony points back on that moment as life-shaping for them. By God's grace, He didn't let us miss the opportunity to be shepherding their hearts to treasure a big God. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Principle three, fathers play a central role in helping their kids love and live for Jesus. Notice that the text does not point to a passive dad. He's one who brings up his children, but he's also not an aggressive dad. He he does not provoke his children to anger. That is, none of us are called to be like Adam was in the garden. First passively sitting next to Eve, he was with her when she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her. And then when God shows up, he turns and says, no, the woman that you gave me. God had said, on the day you eat of it, you will die. And the aggression rose and he pointed to his girl. That's not how dads are supposed to be. Instead, we're supposed to be those who bring up our children. This word bring up here is the same word that Paul, just a few verses earlier, said none of us seek to hurt our own bodies. Instead, we nourish them and we cherish them. It's the word for nourish right there. That's what fathers are supposed to do with their kids. Dads are servant leaders who are to model provision and protection. And there's a distinct element here to household heads that Paul is calling for. I say provision and protection because before Eve was ever made, God took Adam, placed him in the garden, and he said, you're here to serve it and to keep it. Or work it and to keep it. That is, he was a servant and a guardian. He was a provider and a protector. And I want my boys to grow up to understand what provision and protection is. I want my girls to grow up understanding that they have a daddy who's a provider and a protector for them. Fathers, you play a key role in the lives of your kids. 
Dads are patterns of godliness. All of this, all of this. Why is that important, this distinction between the head and the helper? Because the distinction between Christ and His church is massively important. And how the dad functions in the home, not as passive, not as aggressive, but doing all things underneath the authority of God. This isn't about dad's way. It's about God's way. Notice what it says. Bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is, the dad himself is disciplined. The dad himself is a follower of the Lord. And now we're helping our kids themselves become followers. This isn't about my kingdom. It's about His kingdom. Modesty and purity. I have a responsibility as a dad to help my girls understand what boys are like. When my 18-year-old was back turning 12, and it happened with every child before that, knowing what their, the Bethlehem, our Bethlehem Baptist Church is going to teach the junior hires when they get there, I, I've walked my kids through the sex talk. So I take my daughter, I took my daughter out to an eight-acre field that was by our house. Daddy took about three laps to talk about boys, pornography, changes in body structure, what's going to be going on inside of her, what's going to be going on inside of the boys, thinking about these things. And then we took about 24, literally 24 more laps for her to ask her questions. From that point forward, there's been open relationship, even before that. But, but I mean, I think that was a, a key point where it just said, I can talk to my dad about these things. I didn't have that, honestly, as a son. My dad didn't talk to me about those things. I wish he would have. It would have helped a lot. But I want to be there talking to my sons about masturbation. Talking about pornography. And it's part of our home. It's part of our dialogue. Some of you may have seen I wrote a recent post on Desiring God on masturbation. I talked to my boy about it. He's 13. My daughters talked to their mom about it. I had them, the older girls read it. These are, these are important things to just leave out, leave right a part of the discussion. We don't want to separate anything. Purity. My, my girls come to me with their outfits. And Numbers 30 tells, says that I as a dad have the responsibility, not just the opportunity, the responsibility to trump any decision that the girls in my home make that I think is unhealthy for our family unit. Headship does that, all underneath the supremacy of God in all things. But my daughters welcome, they come to daddy, daddy, is this okay? Is this too low? Is this too high? And I I just am awed that God has let that happen in my home. So much of it has to do with their mommy. Believe me, to be a biblical father means that you will cherish the mom's role. A few texts. In my home, we happen to homeschool, I'll say this. We happen to homeschool our six. My wife is amazing. She's got twin first graders and a senior this year. She is the primary, the point planner and the point implementer of shepherding our kids. Proverbs 31, woman, she's the one who carries out and manages numerous domestic duties while her husband is known at the city gate where he sits among the elders of the land. Teresa, my wife, and I take nightly walks 
And it's really an opportunity for her to, to kind of download for me to understand what's going on in the kids' lives. I'm gone most of the day. She's the one who's involved. She, she clarifies for me. She asks questions. We pray. But another big thing that happens during that time is that I listen. I listen to her share. I hear from her. She's so much better. She knows the kids better than I do. And so she speaks into my life. She says, I think it might be helpful if you did this. So much, honestly, so much of the discipleship that happens in our home through this daddy is because mommy's the one who has seen the need first and she's encouraged me to step into that role. Don't be afraid of that. I don't think that's countering headship at all. It's, imp- it's being the helper. I need it. And so she's been there uh, encouraging, praying. She's so strong. So she offers me helpful suggestions. She aids my thinking about how to be the best dad that I can be. Part of what it means to be a father is to celebrate the mother. In all the ancient world, there is no talk of mothers teaching children until you get to the Bible. Proverbs is unique this way. So what do we read? Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 1.8 My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 6.20 The excellent wife is one who opens her mouth in wisdom, who has the teaching of kindness on her tongue. Proverbs 31.26 Timothy was raised up on the sacred writings that are able to make us wise unto salvation. Who is he raised up by? 2 Timothy 1.5, his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois. We need godly women and godly dads will recognize that. Principle four, making disciples of our children requires a balance of discipline and instruction. Time is ticking here, isn't it? Discipline in the Bible includes two things. It includes correction when something is wrong. And the three texts in the Old Testament that mention discipline of the Lord all focus on that type of correction when there's something wrong, getting people back on course. But discipline also refers to strength training. We see that in a text like 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is useful for training the man in godliness. That's this word, discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, The Father's discipline, Heavenly Father's discipline is compared with the Father's, earthly Father's discipline. We all had fathers who disciplined us, and we appreciated it. We need to work that out. The instruction of the Lord, two sides, law of Christ and warning. This is about guidance for our kids, and I as a dad have the responsibility to bring out both. Let me go through a few more of my daughter's lists and we'll bring this toward an end. Daddy, here's what you do. Helping us process after a sermon that is confusing or biblically challenging to understand. Not being afraid to share hard things with us like someone struggle with cancer, how to address homosexuality and transgender, a missionary family has a child die. Instead of having to process or fight these on our own, you share some things with us and help us process them in a God-honoring way. I don't really know if it fits into the list, Daddy, but I think that it is neat that one language that you choose to teach us in high school is a biblical one. All my kids take Greek. Yes, it's definitely hard at times, but it really does grow in me a deeper love and curiosity for the Bible. 
At Christmas time, we had to go back and we, we got to go visit family. Grandparents are getting old. We paused to help our kids prepare. What would it look like to honor grandma and grandpa in their home as they're aging? That's intentional instruction. We warn our kids regarding what consequences would be. Appropriate action in certain locations like church auditoriums. That's important. Give your kids guidance. Financial stewardship. From, I mean, our very youngest kids already are putting aside 10% toward the local church, 50% toward college, money set aside for giving. And as they grow and get more money, we help refine the percentages. Prayer and follow-up in areas of struggle. It's just part of my wife and I as we're working. In the bibliography, there's an article by Paul Wagner, and I just direct your attention to it. He went through the entire book of Proverbs, and he notes that spanking is not the first step in discipling and disciplining our children. Number one, parents teach guidelines, like clarifying appropriate and inappropriate behavior and explaining the negative consequences for disobedience. Stage two in Proverbs is reiterating the guidelines by giving warnings. And only in stage three do we enforce the guidelines by reprimand with non-physical discipline and then, if need be, physical discipline. I encourage you to check out his article. You can see how to download it in the paper I didn't get to cover number five, but it's so vitally important. If you know Ephesians 5 and 6, you know that children obey parents, parents care for your kids doesn't come in a vacuum. It all starts with the command in chapter 5 verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, submitting one to another. Wives to your husbands, husbands to your wives, children to your parents, Parents to your children, slaves to your masters, masters to your slaves. Submitting one to another is a participle that grows out of the imperative, that it clarifies the result of the imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. We will only be godly dads if first we're men, we're men who've encountered the Spirit of God. And the parallel in Colossians says that means reading the book. That's how you get filled with the Spirit. All of this is only going to happen rightly in the context of a Spirit-empowered life. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.